Welcome to the Barn Church Podcast. chapter 20. Amen. I have good news this morning. He is risen. Can I get a witness out of the church? Hallelujah. Praise God. It changes everything. I mean, it changes everything. And turn to John chapter 20, starting in verse 1, and stand for the reading of the word, if you would. Father, we thank you and praise you for this day and what we celebrate, and we thank you that we're like Mary Magdalene staring at an empty tomb. Sometimes we don't know what to do with that, but But as we grow in you, you show us the power of it and the magnitude of it and the implication for our own life. And we so thank you, Lord, and so praise you that the world now, even a world that's broken and a world that's at war and a world that's, I saw in Ukraine where Billy Graham is bringing an Easter message from Ukraine at 12 noon, standing in the battlefield, declaring the blood and sacrifice of Jesus over it. And I thought, what a powerful thing. And the Ukrainian churches, very few of the Ukrainian churches have been bombed, and they're, and they're still standing, and they're full. And we just pray for them. We pray for those that are in the difficult stage, those that have not seen the power yet manifest, that they would see your peace, and they would see your, your, your hope fall on that land. And they would see and remember that you are the Lord, and that you did an incredible thing. And it changes every circumstance. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. And she ran and she came to Simon Peter and to the other disciples, the other disciple who Jesus loved. I love that Paul, John called himself the disciple who Jesus loved. And said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. And Peter therefore went out, and the other disciple, and were going, they were going to the tomb, and they ran both together. And the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. John wanted the scripture to record that he's faster than Peter, and he beat him there. And, he, and Peter came to the tomb, uh, uh, outran Peter and came to the tomb first, and he stooped down And looking in, saw that the linen clothes lying there, yet he was not in there. And he didn't go in. And then Peter, Simon Peter came following him, and he went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there. And the handkerchief that had been folded, which was around his head, was not lying with the linen cloth, but folded together in a place by itself. And then the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also, and he saw and he believed. It says that he saw and he believed. See, that's all it's about. It's just about seeing and believing. For as yet they had not known the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. And then the disciples went away again to their own homes. May God add his blessing in reading the word. You may be seated. So I want to talk about some facts this morning. Number one, the empty tomb is an indisputable fact. There is nobody who argues that the tomb was not empty. There's never been any event in antiquity that's been better documented than the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and the empty tomb 
that resulted three days later. There's a lot of argument about where the body is and what happened to the body, but there is no argument about the empty tomb. Even the Quran of Islam acknowledges Christ was crucified, and they call him a prophet to the Jews, and they teach that he did not actually die, that he actually recovered from his wounds. If you have studied or seen movies or films about the scourging and about the things Jesus went through, you know there's no way he suddenly recovered. He had to eventually succumb to those. So the historical evidence is out there, and no one disputes that the tomb was empty. The question is, what happened to the body? That's the question. The icon of the Acts 2 church was actually not the cross. It took several hundred years for us to work out the theology of the atonement, as us theologians like to say. And we still haven't got it worked out very good. We still argue a little bit about who's saved, how did they get saved, when did they get saved, and what did that mean? The Catholic Church, of course, believes it, it's, it happens with the water baptism, that you baptize a child who's totally dumb to the world and knows nothing except some man dressed funny poured some water on him. That probably doesn't feel like a Jesus moment. But anyway, they, they, that if you've been baptized, that you're going to heaven. Uh, the Protestant groups have all got their different idea of, of, a lot of them have the barcode theology. You know, you can live like the devil, but when you get, you get, you answer an invitation, you get saved, and they slap a, slap a barcode on your butt. When you get to heaven, the angels read it with a reader, and, and you may have lived like hell your whole life, but that somehow the barcode shows that you're in. Like you take one off, a, off, a, off of a sh- glass of champagne and stick it on a sack of dog food, run it through the Walmart barcode br- reader, and it thinks it's champagne. It has no way to distinguish what's the what what the what the pack what's in the package from what's on the package and that's not very good theology if you agree with me say amen but on the other hand we don't get to heaven through works we know that that's the big protestant revelation but what happens is we accept christ and he begins to work in us and he begins to change us and we believe that it leads to the second dispensation of grace called the baptism of the holy spirit and that happens when you give up I, I really wish we could change the terminology from spirit-filled to spirit-yielded. I think when you fully yield to what's in you, then you become that thing that's in you, that's working in you, and you become totally immersed in the Holy Spirit. So we get a lot of argument about the cross. The cross. We know the cross is essential, and the cross has become the icon of the, of the modern church, but I want you to think about the church of John the Apostle and Paul and Peter and James they had no, the people, the people didn't even understand the atonement. They didn't know they needed forgiveness, and they didn't even care. So what happens, how does a church grow in, a, in an environment and in a culture where if you become a Christian, you're more than likely going to have all your property confiscated, and you might get burned at the stake? And yet their conversion rates were unbelievable. Peter preaches at the, off, the, off the porch at the, at the temple, the first day the church was born at Pentecost, and 3,000 people got saved. The word says the Lord added to their numbers daily. Christianity became a phenomenon on the, in the Roman Empire. That's the reason that they had to start, start persecuting Christians. They were a threat to the emperor. They were, they were so, it was growing so fast, nobody knew where it was going, and the, and the politicians were afraid. 
And so they started, they started confiscating their property and, and persecuting them and feeding them to the lions. And you know the whole story. How do you keep, what motivates people to get saved in that kind of an environment? It's not the cross. It's not even forgiveness. They don't even understand that doctrine. The icon of the early church was the empty tomb. The icon of the church was the empty tomb. There was a power. There was a man who had a power over the natural. There was a man who came and was killed by the Romans, and it didn't stop him. There was a man who came and told them that I'm the way and the life. I'm the resurrection. And they go, what does that mean? Well, the dude was hanging dead off a cross, and three days later he was walking around Jerusalem. That's what. There were 500 people that Jesus taught between the, between the resurrection and his ascension into heaven at Pentecost, there were 500 people. And this 500 people began to be scattered out through the population. And folks started giving. They, what people are after is a life that can't be taken. What people are after is the transcendent life that transcends every tragedy, every injustice, every horrible thing that can happen to you don't matter. The devil can't take your life. That's what caused the church to grow. And we got away from that somewhere. And we got to this deal where you can feel better, you can get forgiven, and you can feel better, and you can still live like hell. But you're forgiven. <laughs> Forgive my bluntness. I think we need to get a little blunter in the church. What you need to do is surrender to the Holy Spirit. Quit worrying about your sin. Let me tell you, you get, don't get sanctified by working harder or, go, or, or, or trying harder. Or doing more. You get sanctified by going deeper. Just go deeper in your spiritual life. And you'll find the sin issues that you deal with and I deal with begin to melt away as we become more like a risen Christ. We let the spirit that raised Christ from the dead begin to rule our life. So, let's look at the credibility of the witnesses to the resurrection. As we try to determine what happened to the body. We had the Roman guards Whenever Christ was crucified, the Pharisees went to Pilate and they said, you better post some guards. In Matthew 27, 62 through 66, on the next day which followed the day of preparation, that was the day Christ was crucified, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together to Pilate and they said, sir, we remember that while he was alive, how the, that deceiver said, in three days I will rise. Therefore, command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest any disciples come by night and steal him away and say to the people, he has risen from the dead. So the last deception will be worse than the first. So Pilate said, you have a guard, go your way, make it secure as you know how. So they went and they made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting a guard around it. Now the problem with the Romans is, is that a Roman guard, if you fell asleep on duty and you were a Roman guard, they, you, the, the penalty was execution. There was a dereliction of duty, and sleeping guards were killed, executed by their commanding officers. So it was a serious thing to be a Roman guard. And in Matthew 8, 21 through 4, <clears throat> it says that there was a great earthquake, and an angel of the Lord descended from heaven, and he came and he rolled back the stone and from, the, from the door, and he sat on it. I love that. The angel not only rolled the stone away, then he sat on it for effect. Just to show everybody that, my gosh, there's a power greater than 
any power of man at work here. And his countenance was like lightning, and his clothing was white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him, and they became like dead men. These were Roman guards. They were not sissies. They had seen a lot of things. They had killed a lot of men. They had been in a lot of battles. This was the greatest land army that has ever been on the face of the earth. They understood how to obey orders. They understood how to use their swords. They were not a bunch of wimps. And when they saw this angel, they passed out. They went out in the Holy Ghost. And when they came to, the tomb was empty. And now their lives were on the line. And it says in Matthew 28, 11 through 15, while they were going, behold, some of the guard came to the city and reported to the chief priest all the things that had happened. How come they didn't go to their commanding officer? They didn't go to their commanding officer because they would be executed. They went to the, to the Caiaphas and the chief priest and they said, we want an explanation. Our lives are on the line now. <clears throat> and when they had assembled with the elders, and, the, and they all consulted together. They gave a large sum of money to the soldiers, and they said to them, Tell them the disciples came at night and stole him away while he slept. And if this comes to the governor's ears, and it surely will, we'll appease him. We'll take care of it, and we'll make you secure. So they took the money, and they did as they were instructed. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews to this day. Why didn't they, they didn't go to their commander. They went to the chief priest, and the chief priest says, well, save your behind. Just tell people that they came and stole the body. The guards wanted an explanation of what happened because they knew they were in big trouble. And they didn't go to the commander. They went to the chief priest, and they said, you've got to send this mess. So that's the testimony of the guards. Now you have the Jewish leadership. What do they say about where the body is? Do you understand that all the Jews had to do to crush Christianity, which they considered a heretic sect of their own faith, and a bunch of troublemakers. All they had to do to stop Christianity in its tracks was produce the body. When these rumors began to spread that he had been resurrected and people began to see him on the streets that knew him before, all they had to do was go find the body. And don't think for one minute that they didn't try every way they knew how to go produce the body of Christ. It would have stamped Christianity out forever and exposed it as a hoax. Oh, they tried everything. They tried to bribe everybody. They tried to look everywhere. They couldn't find the body. In John 11, after he raised Lazarus from the dead, verse 47 through 48, it created such a stir. This is before the resurrection, before the crucifixion. It created such a stir. It says, then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, what shall we do for this man works many signs? If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe him, and the Romans will come and take our, both our place and our nation. Yes, they were politicians. They were worried about the politics of Christ becoming the Messiah. They were worried about their own. Surely a politician wouldn't lie to save his own skin. Surely. So they couldn't produce the body, so they started the rumor that the disciples had stolen the body in spite of no real evidence to prove that in order to try to save themselves. And there's the disciples themselves, and this is the convincing thing. When Jesus was arrested, they ran. Peter, the tough guy in the group, denied him three times. They were scared. Their whole life had been like, Knocked off kilter. 
It says that when the guard came and arrested Jesus in the garden, John Mark had thrown a tunic around himself, and they tried to catch him, and they grabbed the tunic and pulled it off, and he ran out of the garden naked, running from the Roman guard. Boy, that's, that's a fierce picture, isn't it, of a real warrior. Hallelujah. He sells that on himself in the book of Mark. But what caused this group of men who had run in fear when he was arrested to be the same group of men who every one of them gave their lives and were martyred mercilessly? Peter was crucified upside down. Thomas was beheaded. One of the other disciples had his skin pulled off slowly in a torture process of that culture. And none of these men, none of these men recanted their testimony that they had seen a risen Christ. They went from cowards to being absolutely fearless. Because they understood when they had had an encounter with a risen Jesus that nothing in this life could hold them back. And no trouble could overcome them. That the resurrection was real. Why die for a lie? If they stole the body, why in the world? Nobody is capable of enduring torture and dying for a lie. But a lot of men, a lot of men will die for the truth. And this is exactly what the disciples did. So there's the evidence. A risen Christ changes everything. Or even our understanding of natural reality. You know, I was reading a book by Michael Ginn, and it said that physicists have now been able to corroborate that the amount of the material universe that we can actually see is only about 95% of the, what's really out there. In other words, <coughs> this is what he quoted a German, famous German physicist named Werner Heisenberg, and he said not only, and this, is, this is what they have discovered, science has discovered over time, not only is the universe stranger than we think, it's indeed stranger than we can think. Jesus did some weird stuff. He walked up to lepers and said, be healed in Jesus' name, and their, and their, and their sores disappeared. He raised the dead. The dude had been in the tomb so long he was starting to stink. And he said, come out of there, Lazarus, and he come hopping out in his grave clothes. He did some incredible things. He touched people and changed their lives. He healed them. He restored them. And it was because he, he came from an understanding of the universe that's much deeper than we're even capable of fathoming. And that's why he said you got to do everything by faith because you can't figure it out. Here's a physicist. He's smarter than me and smarter than you. And he says, it's indeed stranger than we are even able to think. We can't grasp how this universe really operates. We don't have the capacity. But Jesus Christ did because he created it. And he knew exactly how it operated. He demonstrated a life beyond the natural life. When Mary, Martha, confronted him because her brother had died and he was late, Martha said to him in John eleven twenty one, Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus said to her back, he said, this is all he said. He didn't make an excuse about being late. He didn't tell her anything. He said, I'm the resurrection and I'm the life. And he who believes in me, though he may die, he will live. 
And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? He asked her, do you believe this? And she said, yeah, I believe it. And then he did something that was crazy, and he called Lazarus out of the tomb and demonstrated that he has the power over death. And in a few days, he's about to demonstrate it again because he's actually going to become the resurrection. This is the key. This is the key. Do you believe? What do you believe? It's an interesting thing about Michael Gian, a great physicist that became a Christian. He was an about atheist and a physicist for years and years and years. And he began to examine Christianity. He met a woman. How many of us men have gotten saved because we met a woman besides me? Hallelujah, raise your hand. There's two of us, three or four or five of us. Amen. He met a woman. She was also a scientist. And she began to say, why, do you, why have you just written off this whole creator concept and all that? And he said, well, you know, I just don't believe that. Well, have you examined the evidence? Well, no, not really. And she said to him, she said, I can present to you the evidence, but you have to believe before you can see. Let me say that again. See, the doubters say seeing is believing. No, it's not. You have to believe before you can see. And when you believe and decide, you have to make a decision. You've got to make a decision that you're going to believe that he is the life and the resurrection. But after you make that decision to believe, he begins to show you things. Then you go, oh my God. How could I have not seen that? How could I have not known that? The Pharisees gathered together and they said, we've got to do something. If people keep believing him, we'll be toast. The most important thing in this life is what do you believe about this particular moment in history? The tomb is empty. That's easy. Everybody knows that. What happened to the body? What happened to the body? You know, <clears throat> I heard a great preacher say this, and it was so good. I just said, I'm just going to use it. But, you know, think about this. On Friday, on Friday, Judas was preparing to betray him. The Romans were trying to decide what the heck they were going to do with him. The Pharisees are plotting his execution. Everything has fallen apart. The disciples go, this is not going like we thought it would go. This guy's supposed to be the Messiah, the one to come and liberate Israel. And now he just got arrested and carried off. Their whole world spun out of control. How many of you ever been in a situation where your whole world spins out of control in a matter of hours? You get a phone call, and then the next thing you know, everything about reality you were living in is all of a sudden unstable. All of a sudden, it ain't what you thought it was going to be. It ain't what you hoped it was going to be. And it looks hopeless and it looks dark and it looks like it's over. This is the way it looked to the disciples. It looked like it was over. And they had given everything to him. They had got, they'd walked off and left their businesses, sold their farms. They had given him everything. And here's how it ends. They were distraught. I have been in that same place in my life when it just seems like everything is gone and that it's over and it's darkness and it's disappointment and it's despair. But here's the thing. Sunday's coming. In your life, if you're facing something and it seems to you like it's over and that it's never going to amount to anything and it's a lost cause, I'm here to tell you Sunday is coming. 
If you believe in the life, and if you believe in the resurrection, if you believe that Jesus Christ was who He said He is, and did what He said He would do, and He made a way for you to live in an eternal life, it's never over. This is, this is the magnitude of the resurrection. It's never over. There's always tomorrow. Uh, this past two years, I've lost my sister. I buried my sister. I buried my dad a few weeks ago. And the way you get through that is you understand that when you accept Christ, it's never over. It's never over. And you know what that does? That makes you live different. It just makes you live different. We were just talking just a minute ago about the roller coasters of life. One day you're up, one day you're down. One day you're up, one day you're down. When you're living the resurrection life, what do you care? Because he has demonstrated that he has control over everything. And he will turn it. He will take darkness and he will turn it to a blinding light. Man, can you imagine when that light erupted out of that tomb, when that angel rolled that stone away? He had to do it at night. It had blinded everybody. Jesus is in the business of taking darkness and turning it to light. The resurrection was the greatest reversal in history. And Jesus said, it's more than that for you. When you, when you believe, then you start to see, you see the resurrection principle working in everything in your life. Everything in your life. When, I've been, when, when you've lived as long as I have, I'm still young. I want to put that in quickly before you guys get the wrong idea. I'm still young. But you know what? I've lived long enough to see some real train wrecks in my life. Looked, they looked like it was over. But Sunday's coming. You may be living in Friday right now, but if you trust Jesus with your life, I guarantee you Sunday is coming. When you give it to Him and lay it on the altar and take your hands off of it, Sunday is coming. When you quit, war quit striving and quit worrying and quit fussing over it, say it with me, Sunday is coming. When you quit, get out of your despair and quit trying to fix it yourself and lay it on the altar and say, I take my hands off of it, I give it to you, Jesus, Sunday is coming.